If you want nightmares, you are in the right place. I couldn't sleep last night after listening. This podcast is genuinely scary. That's what people are saying about Frightful. And if you'd like a few nightmares of your own, then how about you step this way? Hi, I'm Peter Laws, and I'm an author, journalist, and the host of Frightful, the podcast that is giving folks the serious creeps. From spine-tingling tales of the paranormal and shocking true crime to disturbing cults, possessions, and the forgotten horrors of history, Frightful is the podcast that pulls you into the darkness with immersive music, sound effects, and storytelling that is designed with one thing in mind, to get under your skin. With new episodes every other Sunday, you'll have plenty to keep that heart rate high. The good news is it's available free wherever you get your podcasts. The bad news is that after listening to this show, you might just have to spend a few more cents on electricity. After all, you're going to be sleeping with the lights on. So search Frightful in your podcast apps and I will see you there in the dark. It's the night of November 8th, 2010 in Markham, Ontario. It's a quiet evening in the sleepy suburb of Unionville. But on this autumn night, something happens that rocks the neighborhood and leaves its occupants feeling unsafe, even in their own homes. At 11.20 p.m., the following 911 call is placed. That is 24-year-old Jennifer Pan. She says three intruders broke into her home, demanded money, tied her to the staircase banister on the second floor, then took her parents to the basement. Before the three men ran out of her home, she heard what she described as pops coming from downstairs. Suddenly, at 34 seconds into the call, something strange happens. Avenue Road. The screaming you hear in the background is Jennifer's 57-year-old father, Han, who has just emerged from the basement. Han stumbles out the front door and makes his way to the neighbor's house to get help. When police arrive, Han is outside his neighbor's home unconscious from what appears to be gunshot wounds to his head and shoulder. When they enter the pan home, Jennifer is where we left her, tied to the banister on the second floor, and the house has been ransacked. In the basement, they find Han's wife and Jennifer's 53-year-old mother, Vic, deceased with multiple gunshots to her head. The scene is harrowing and unprecedented for this quiet neighborhood. And it raises questions. Why this family? And why leave Jennifer alive to be a witness? Hi, strangers. This is your host, Alexa Morrissey. And today's story has so many twists and turns, it will make your head spin. It's a story that will question what's more terrifying, a stranger entering your house, or one that's always been there. This is the story of Bick, Han, and Jennifer Pan. Lock your doors and listen closely. This is Stranger in the House. Bick and Han Pen were a classic immigrant success story. 
They traveled to Canada independently as refugees from Vietnam in the late 70s. They met, they dated, and eventually married in Toronto. They had two children, Jennifer in 1986 and then Felix in 1989. Bick and Han were hard workers, and they both had jobs in auto part manufacturing. They lived frugally enough to eventually afford a large home in Markham and luxury cars. Han drove a Mercedes, and Bick drove a Lexus. The two of them worked hard to establish a good life for their family, and they expected their children to do the same. At four years old, Jennifer was enrolled in piano lessons and figure skating. And by elementary school, she was on track for the 2010 Winter Olympics. Between her intense piano lessons and figure skating training, plus the high expectations her parents had for her schoolwork, Jennifer was under an immense amount of pressure from her parents. But it paid off. Her report cards showed that she was an A student, and by the time she was ready to graduate high school, she had plans to pursue a career as a pharmacist. She began her college education at Ryerson University and later transferred to the University of Toronto. Her younger brother Felix was also expected to be successful. Han wanted his son to pursue a career in auto manufacturing, but instead of making parts like his parents, Han wanted Felix to reach for more and design cars. Felix eventually went to McMaster University to study engineering, and that's where he was the night his family was attacked. The night of November 8th, Han, collapsed after suffering a gunshot wound to the head, is immediately taken to the hospital, where he is put into a medically induced coma. Jennifer, his 24-year-old daughter, is found tied to a staircase banister on the second floor with a black shoelace. Jennifer's mother, Bick, was found in the basement, deceased from several gunshot wounds to the head. A sheet was thrown over her bleeding body. After examining the crime scene, police had two questions. Who would do this, and why? And they get their answers from Jennifer, who describes a robbery gone horribly wrong. Jennifer, while rattled by the night's events, is unharmed and immediately taken to the station for questioning. Jennifer says she spent most of her evening in her bedroom watching Gossip Girl and John and Kate Plus Eight. She says that her father headed to bed around 8.30 p.m. and her mother was out line dancing with her cousin. Her mother arrived home at 9.30 p.m., changed into her pajamas, and went to watch television in the living room while she soaked her feet. Around 10.10 p.m., Jennifer was on her phone in her room when she heard footsteps outside her door. She opened the door to a pistol pointed directly at her. The man behind the gun screamed, where's the money? and then he tied Jennifer's hands behind her back with a shoelace and dragged her around the house as they searched for valuables. There were three intruders in total, all black males. She gave them $2,400 that she had saved from piano lessons and another $1,100 her mother had hidden in a nightstand. The intruders had woken up her father, Han, and dragged him to the living room with Bick. They were angry. The money they had gotten from Jennifer wasn't enough, and one of them pistol-whipped Han. Another assailant takes Jennifer to the second floor and ties her arms to a banister with another shoelace, her hands still bound behind her back. Jennifer said she heard popping sounds moments later, which she now knew were gunshots. After telling her account of the night's events, the police let Jennifer go, and they start their investigation into who these three men are and why they targeted the pan house, because as one neighbor asked, 
There were so many larger homes in the area. Why target this one? And if they did target this house for a specific reason, one would think it was because of the two luxury cars, one Mercedes and one Lexus, parked in the garage. But no, these men left the two cars, and under further investigation, left several credit cards and other valuables as well. Police catch a break when they're able to access a neighbor's home security footage. Surveillance from a home security camera across the street showed three figures walk up to the front door and enter, the door seemingly unlocked. A little less than an hour later, the surveillance shows them again, running from the house, taking off on foot. The footage definitely shows three men, but their features weren't distinguishable. To police, these criminals don't seem too smart. Aside from being caught on camera, they left a lot of valuables behind, the two luxury cars being the biggest. But to shoot two people in the head and then leave a witness was an obvious misstep. It seemed strange to police that these men would leave Jennifer alive. And on the topic of Jennifer, another thing was strange to the police. How was Jennifer able to call 911 with her hands tied behind her back? The police bring Jennifer in for questioning again the next day. And they ask for a demonstration of how she was able to get her phone out of her waistband and make the call. The phone was a flip phone as well, making the process seem even more improbable. In the interrogation, Jennifer seems hesitant and still shaken by the whole event, but she eventually gets up and puts her phone in her waistband. She keeps her hands behind her back, her shoulders pulled back to mimic the rope tying her to the banister, and she attempts to reach for her phone. And she does it. She successfully shows them how she was able to grab the phone, dial, and talk to the operator all with her hands behind her back. With the phone down by her restrained hands, she says she turned the volume on max and shouted at the phone so the operator could hear her. And just like that, she's answered their question. And yet, something is still not sitting right with police. Something about Jennifer's demeanor just doesn't feel right. So they follow her in the days to come. They see her go to her mother's funeral with her younger brother, Felix, and they describe her as either showing no emotion or appearing to put on a show of extreme emotion. Still, with no leads on the three men, the police go back to the 911 call and they find something odd about it. During the 911 call, you can hear Jennifer's father yell in the distance as he emerges from the basement. And Jennifer calls for him. I'm okay, hello, hello? But he doesn't check on her. He can hear her calling for him, but he runs out the front door for help instead. Now, while we can never predict what we will do when faced with such trauma, the police find this strange because what father wouldn't go check on his daughter after a brutal home invasion? Especially one that's calling for you. They don't have to wait long for their answer, though, because a few days later, Han wakes up from his coma. 
When Han wakes up from his medically induced coma, he says he remembers every detail of the night he was shot. And what he describes to police is completely different from what Jennifer has told them. As it turns out, what she has told police is a lie. Because everything Jennifer says is a lie. When she was young, Jennifer seemed to thrive socially and academically. She showed tremendous talent in figure skating, so much so that she was on track for the Olympics. All that changed when she tore a ligament in her knee in the eighth grade. Dreams dashed, and the pressure from her parents to excel at everything she did, Jennifer began to self-harm, making small cuts on her arm. When she did not graduate from middle school as valedictorian, she was devastated. Her parents wanted perfection, and she felt inadequate. By the time she reached high school, Jennifer was no longer an A student. But her parents didn't know that. You see, Jennifer was getting Bs, and while that's not a bad grade, her parents wanted As. So she began doctoring her report cards to look like she was getting the grades they expected from her. She used glue, a photocopier, and old report cards to create documents to show her parents. Even without A's, Jennifer eventually was accepted into Ryerson University. And it looked like Jennifer would escape high school without her parents ever knowing that she was forging her report cards. That is, until her senior year of high school. Jennifer failed calculus and was unable to graduate high school with that grade. And because of this, the university withdrew its offer of acceptance. Jennifer knew this would be unacceptable to her parents, so she continued to forge her report cards and then tacked on a high school diploma. She told her parents that she was going to Ryerson University for two years and then transferring to the University of Toronto. She even told her parents that she had won a scholarship. The web of lies Jennifer was spinning was getting larger because besides her academic lies, Jennifer was also dating a boy named Daniel Wong. Now, Jennifer had a lot of expectations and restrictions on her. Her parents picked Jennifer up at the end of the school day and monitored her extracurricular activities and forbade her from attending dances, which Han considered unproductive. Parties and boyfriends were definitely off limits until after university. But then Jennifer met Daniel Wong in grade 11. He was fun, goofy, and in the school band. Daniel calmed Jennifer down after she had an asthma attack at the venue that they were performing at. And from then on, they were dating. But as with everything else, Jennifer lied to her parents and kept Daniel a secret. After her supposed high school graduation rolled around, Jennifer started to pretend to attend Ryerson University. To her parents, she had bought all the books for her coursework and would take the bus to class every day. But in reality, Jennifer would go to public libraries where she would search internet for relevant information that she should be studying in school to fill her notebooks with. She'd spend her free times at cafes or visiting Daniel where he was taking classes. She taught piano lessons and later worked at a bar where Daniel was kitchen manager. At home, Han often asked Jennifer about her studies, but Bick told him not to interfere. Let her be herself, she said. Out of the two parents, Bick, it seemed, was less intense than Han. Jennifer spent two years pretending to attend Ryerson University. 
and when her father asked if she was still planning on transferring to University of Toronto, she said yes, and she was actually accepted into the pharmacological program. Her parents were thrilled. She capitalized on their excitement to convince them to let her stay with her friend Topaz three nights a week because she lived closer to the university's campus. Bick helped Jennifer convince her father that it was a good idea, but as you've probably guessed, Jennifer never stayed with Topaz. During those three days, she stayed with her boyfriend Daniel and his family. She kept this charade up for another two years, pretending to go to U of T and staying with Topaz. Now, while Daniel was aware that Jennifer was lying to Bick and Han, Daniel's parents constantly tried to set up a good time to meet Jennifer's parents because she had told them they were okay with her dating and living with her son part-time. Jennifer would constantly brush off their requests, coming up with excuses why they couldn't meet. When it was finally time to graduate the University of Toronto, Daniel and Jennifer found someone online to forge transcripts, full of A's, of course. Jennifer told her parents that because her class was so large, tickets to graduation had been limited to one per person. So in order not to choose one of her parents and make the other feel left out, she told them she would just invite a friend. Now, towards the end of her fake semester at the University of Toronto, Jennifer told her parents that she had gotten a job volunteering at a hospital blood lab called Sick Kids. This was a ploy to allow her to spend more time at Topaz's, aka Daniel's house, over the weekend. She told them the job would require late nights and possibly weekends. Because while she was in her early 20s and in theory almost finished with college, she was still not allowed to go out with friends and do anything that wasn't seen as productive to her parents over the weekend. Jennifer's ploy to have some fun on the weekends would not work, however, because her father noticed something strange one night. Despite saying she had gotten this job at a lab, Jennifer had no uniform or key card. The next day, Han insisted that he drop her off at work, and Han drove Jennifer to the sick kid's lab, and once they arrived, Jennifer went inside the hospital. It wasn't long until she realized that her mother had also arrived in her car to see if Jennifer actually worked there as well. Jennifer stayed in the ER waiting room for hours, waiting her parents out until they were convinced she wasn't going to leave. Despite seemingly getting away with tricking her parents into thinking she was going to work at a lab, Han and Bix still had their suspicions. They called her friend Topaz the next morning. Topaz revealed that, no, Jennifer was not there, and she did not stay at her home that week. When Jennifer arrived home, Han confronted his daughter, and finally, she told her parents everything. She was not attending the University of Toronto. She did not work at SickKids, and she was staying with her boyfriend they had never heard of, not her friend Topaz. She did not tell them that she didn't graduate high school and never attended Ryerson, however. If Jennifer thought she was on a tight leash before, she had no idea what she was in for after the revelation. At first, Han told Jennifer to leave and never return, but it was Bick who begged her husband to let Jennifer stay. They took her cell phone and laptop for two weeks, and she was only allowed to read and answer messages she received in their presence, and they would approve anything she sent. She was forbidden to see Daniel and was forced to quit all her extra jobs except for her piano lessons. They even tracked the odometer on her car to make sure she was only going to and from piano lessons and home. 
Vic was sympathetic to Jennifer's pain. Her daughter was in love and she couldn't communicate with Daniel. She was a prisoner in her own home. This led Vic to tell Jennifer where her father hid the phone so she could use it after her father went to sleep. At night, Jennifer would call Daniel and whisper over the phone so her father wouldn't hear. Jennifer would get some freedom and then it would be taken away. One night she snuck out to see Daniel and arranged her pillows to make it look like she was in bed. But she was found out and her parents gave her an ultimatum. Cut ties with Daniel and end their relationship or be with Daniel and never speak to her family again. And despite her love for Daniel, Jennifer chose her parents. Now, Jennifer did try to keep in touch with Daniel in secret, but Daniel was growing tired of this relationship. Jennifer was 24 years old, and while she was terrified of her parents and constantly sneaking around, she refused to leave them. Daniel broke it off with Jennifer, and she was devastated. Even more so when she found out that Daniel had started dating a new girl named Christine. Heartbroken and not willing to lose Daniel forever, Jennifer did what she did best. She lied. Jennifer told Daniel that Christine was jealous of Jennifer and had orchestrated an attack on her. Jennifer said she had been gang-raped in a home invasion under the direction of Christine. And days later was sent a bullet in the mail with a letter from Christine telling her to stay away from Daniel. Now, we are unsure if Daniel actually believed that it was Christine who was behind Jennifer's attack. But the lie did accomplish Jennifer's goal of getting back Daniel's attention. It was in the spring of 2010 when Jennifer got a dark thought in her head. She had reconnected with a friend from elementary school. While telling him about her horrible relationship with her parents, the young man confessed that he had once thought about killing his own father. And suddenly, Jennifer could see it. The life she could have if her controlling father was no longer around. The freedom she would finally have if he was dead. Jennifer had first tried to get someone to kill her father on her own, meeting with her friend Andrew Montemayor's roommate, in between piano lessons to plot his murder. But the roommate never followed through with their plan and had never taken her plan seriously. That's when she asked Daniel for help. Daniel and Jennifer started to concoct a sinister plan. They were going to hire a hitman to kill Bick and Han and then collect Jennifer's inheritance of $500,000. Daniel got Jennifer a spare iPhone and a SIM card and connected her with a guy he knew named Lenford Crawford, also known as Homeboy. She was careful not to use the phone her parents knew she had and sometimes monitored. Crawford said that because Jennifer was a friend of Daniel's, he would kill her parents for a discounted price of $10,000. And Jennifer agreed to those terms. It's Halloween night, 2010 and the children in Jennifer Pan's neighborhood are filling the streets in their costumes on the hunt for some candy. Unbeknownst to them, Lenford Crawford is also walking around the neighborhood. Except, he is scoping out the Pan household, gathering information before he kills Bick and Han Pan for Jennifer the following week. On the night of November 8th, her father went to bed early, and at 9.30 p.m., her mother got home from line dancing. Her mother changed into her pajamas and went to the living room to soak her feet. At 9.35, a man named David, a friend of Crawford's, called Jennifer. 
They spoke for nearly two minutes. After the call, she went downstairs to say goodnight to her mother and unlocked the front door. At 10.02 p.m., Jennifer switched on the upstairs light, allegedly signaling to the intruders. And a minute later, it switched off. At 10.05 p.m., David called again. And he and Jennifer spoke for three and a half minutes. Moments later, Crawford, David, and a third man named Eric Carty walked through the front door, all three carrying guns. One pointed his gun at Bick while the other ran upstairs, shoved a gun in Han's face, and directed him out of bed, downstairs, and into the living room. While Crawford and David threatened Bick and Han with guns to give them everything they had in the house, Eric Carty went upstairs to find Jennifer, and she took him around the house to show him where the cash was hidden. At some point, Han must have noticed his daughter and Cardi, because when he later woke up from his coma, he said he saw his daughter talking to one of the intruders, like a friend. Bick screamed in Cantonese, how did they enter the house? And Han said he didn't know because he was sleeping. The gunman screamed for them to shut up and tell them where the money was. Bick cried, begging the gunman to spare her daughter. One of the intruders replied, rest assured, she is nice and will not be hurt. While Eric Carty tied Jennifer to the staircase banister on the second floor, the other two gunmen took Bick and Han to the basement. They threw a sheet over their heads and shot Han twice, once in the shoulder and once in the face. Han crumpled to the ground and they shot Bick three times in the head, killing her instantly. It's after the three men flee the house that Jennifer is able to reach her phone. As she dials, Han wakes, bloodied next to his dead wife in the basement. He crawls up the basement stairs and stumbles out the front door, running into a neighbor who was just about to leave for work. The neighbor calls 911, and Han is taken to the hospital and put in a medically induced coma. On November 12th, four days after the attack, Han wakes up from his coma and tells police everything he remembers, including that he saw his daughter chatting softly with one of the intruders, and her arms were not tied behind her back as she led them around the house. With this information, on November 22nd, 2010, police bring Jennifer in for a third questioning. And this time they tell her they know she was involved with her mother's murder and her father's attack. Jennifer breaks down and sobs. She asks the police, but what happens to me? During a four-hour confession, Jennifer once again does what she does best and lies. She says that the plan was actually to have someone come to the house and kill her in an assisted suicide. But somehow, wires got crossed and her parents were attacked instead. Police are not fooled, and she is arrested on the spot. In the spring of 2011, after getting warrants to search Jennifer's cell phone records and texts, Daniel and the three men who attacked her parents were all charged with first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. Jennifer's trial started in March 2014, four years after the murder of her mother and attempted murder of her father. Jennifer continued to tell her lies on the stand. She tried to convince the jury that she did order a hit on her father, but then called it off when their relationship improved. And then once again, somehow their wires got crossed. Unfortunately for Jennifer, the jury did not buy her story. Over the course of the trial, more than 50 witnesses testified, and over 200 exhibits were filed. One of the most damning pieces of evidence was a testimony from the first person she had connected with to kill her father. 
her friend Andrew Montemayor was subpoenaed during her trial. He said that he had never taken Jennifer's ideas of killing her parents seriously, and he introduced her to his roommate as a potential hitman to, quote, calm her down. Later, Jennifer gave that roommate $1,500 and called him begging to kill her parents. But he never returned any of her calls after that. Jennifer also called Andrew on November 8th, the day of the murder, to tell him about the home invasion scheme, laying out the whole plan and saying that she wouldn't actually be hurt. Andrew alleged that he had thought she was joking. With this information and all the evidence police had collected, the jury found Jennifer Pan guilty of first-degree murder of her mother and attempted murder of her father. She was sentenced to two life sentences, one for each crime, and no chance of parole for 25 years. Daniel and the other three men involved were found guilty and were convicted with life sentences as well. Han Pan wrote a victim impact statement during Jennifer's trial. He said, When I lost my wife, I lost my daughter at the same time. I don't feel like I have a family anymore. Some say I should feel lucky to be alive, but I feel like I am dead too. Jennifer didn't just kill her mother, but she forever altered her father and her brother's lives. Felix moved out to the East Coast to escape the stigma of the Pan name. Han suffers from anxiety attacks, insomnia, and when he can sleep, he says he gets horrible nightmares. He can't bear to be in the house where his wife was murdered, so he lives with relatives. Han addressed Jennifer at the end of his impact statement by saying, I hope my daughter, Jennifer, thinks about what has happened to her family and can become a good, honest person someday. Jennifer Pan remains in prison, where she will most likely stay until she dies. An ironic end for a girl who desperately wanted her freedom. Jennifer invited three strangers into her home to murder her parents, who only wanted the best for their daughter. But the truth was, they didn't know their daughter. She had spun such a web of lies to keep them happy that they never realized that she was a stranger in their house. This episode was written by Alexa Morrissey, researched by Victoria Cox, and produced by Michael Morrissey, John Scassia, and Heidi Schreierman. Stranger in the House is a Boy Wonder production. All our sources for this episode will be linked in the bio and on our website, strangerinthehouse.com. But a special thanks to Karen Keiko's article, Jennifer Pan's Revenge in Toronto Life, and Marco Margaritoff's article in allthatsinteresting.com. You can follow us at strangerinthehouse.com, at underscore strangerinthehouse on Instagram and TikTok, and at underscore strangerpod on Twitter. Stay safe, and thanks for listening. Introducing Jay is for Justice podcast. Join Jay as she fearlessly dives into the intriguing world of true crime. With a sprinkle of humor, Jay navigates through the darkest cases while uplifting our supportive community. Tune in to Jay is for Justice for captivating narratives, thought-provoking discussions, and exclusive updates. Subscribe now and join us on the journey through the mysteries of true crime. Don't miss out. Hit subscribe and let's explore together.